uh, we're continuing our study through the book of Luke and we're starting in chapter 6. That's because we finished chapter 5. So open up to Luke chapter 6. If you need a Bible, there'll be folks walking down the aisles and you're welcome to that Bible. If you don't own one, you're welcome to keep it. Hey, how's it going? You probably could do a better job preaching. Amen. Luke chapter 6. Now, before we stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, um, I, I want to uh, share with you again how the Lord ministered to me through this passage. Uh, it's an interesting passage. It's the beginning of uh, kind of an attack on Jesus, and it's going to happen six more times um, in the gospel accounts where he's going to be attacked for not honoring the Sabbath, and we're covering one account this morning. But I... Um, I Yesterday, I was asked to speak at a, a gathering of a, of a national fraternity. Um, it's a college fraternity or university fraternity. It's called Alpha Gamma Omega. It's part of the Greek system. Um, and they have chapters all over the country, east to west coast and all points in between. And I happen to be a member of that fraternity. I started a chapter at Fresno State uh, back in the mid-80s. And uh, it's a Christian fraternity, part of the Greek system, Alpha, Gamma, Omega. And um, uh, so we, the Fresno State chapter is the Eta chapter. And you just go down the, alpha, the Greek alphabet. You have the Alpha chapter, the Beta chapter. We're Eta chapter. And um, what's cool is because I'm the one who started it. I'm Eta number one. So all the pledges for 30 years have had to memorize my name. I'm a legend. <laughs> um, but I had kind of fallen off the radar with this, this, uh, this fraternity. I had gone to one national meeting years ago, but hadn't really connected or stayed in touch with them. Didn't even really know what was happening with the chapter. My life moved on. And then uh, they got my name, seeing that I was the mayor of the city, and that I was a pastor, and they wanted me to be the keynote speaker. Um, and apparently I had become important to them uh, over time. And so they invited me to come. And uh, it was a gathering, uh, they had alumni, they had actives, they had pledges from all over the country, and um, I arrived there kind of incognito, and uh, I sat in the back table, I didn't sit up in the front section, sat down with a group of guys and started talking, and I, uh, you've heard me say this often, but people don't so much want to know about you as they want you to know about them, and I, I love that because when you ask people questions, they just love to share with you. And I just went around the table, and they're all sharing, and it was intriguing, and to hear their lives, and how God's using them, and what they're doing, and uh, what the fraternity meant to them, and what it means to them, and why they're here, and about their families, and their professions, and they were all sharing, and, uh, and, and I knew everything about them, and they knew nothing about me. And then they, they introduced me and they had me get up and I stand up. They didn't realize I was the keynote and they're looking at me and I'm walking over and it was kind of fun. It was one of those little, I'm Batman. And, uh, and I, I, I get up there and um, I was asked by the person who was coordinating it to speak specifically on how I, I started the fraternity. Um, and they had done an outline on what I was supposed to speak on and it was it was difficult. I'm looking at the outline and it just is not clicking with me. So uh, I didn't know really what I was supposed to do based on the outline they'd given me. And I'm driving in and one of the congregants, uh, John Lindsay, I was talking to him on the phone, catching up with him. And John said, wait a minute, they want you to talk about something you started over 30 years ago. I said, yeah. And he goes, you're 54, right? I said, yeah, I'm almost 55. He said, how can they expect you to remember that at your age? I was insulted and immediately relieved. So I opened with that exact line. I said, you know, uh, I've been asked by Stephen to talk about how I started the fraternity over 30 years ago and at 54, almost 55 years of age, I just want to confess to Stephen and all of you, I have no idea nor do I remember. And they, and they all giggled and I said, now that I've covered what Stephen wanted me to talk, cover, let's go into what I want to talk about. And I springboarded into um, this idea of a pastor politician. Um, and, 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 it, and there, was, there was a consensus. I would say half the room were active clergy. Uh, the fraternity's been very effective in launching clergy throughout the country. And they all have their ideas. And, and it was, it, they were almost standoffish uh, by my introduction. And they weren't sure what to make of it. Um, 
And I, I started to kind of take them through the process of that and how Alpha Gamma Omega was instrumental in what I'd learned in Fresno in, in the early 90s when we had the second highest murder rate, second highest car theft rate, and how after the L.A. riots, the city of Fresno was about to implode and the, the public and private sector got together and we started to minister through uh, the government and also through the churches working in unison. And by 1997, we had the highest crime rate drop in FBI statistic history. In Amer- and then Fresno became America's finest city in 97. And I said, and all that was a result of engaging, just stepping forward to start a fraternity as a college student, not knowing where it would take me. And here I am today as a, a mayor of a city and a pastor of a church. And, and I started to go into that realm. Well, a number of them have been educated or I almost want to say indoctrinated that, they're, that you shouldn't participate in both. And by the conclusion, through exegesis of the scripture and laying this out, I presented that and they were basically through the scripture without excuse. They may not have agreed with me, but their preconceived idea, and this will tie in with the text, their preconceived idea of what the church is supposed to be was adversely affecting my presentation to them. Uh, folks will come into the church and they'll be offended by the fact that we have what is called syncopated rhythms. We have drums. Some folks believe that you should only have a, a piano or an organ or only a cappella. I get that. I, I went to a Mennonite Brethren seminary and spent um, four weeks in a Hutterite uh, co- uh, community. Um, and then I remember when I was just in uh, a part of Calvary Chapel, I went to a pastor's conference and I saw all these pastors wearing Hawaiian shirts. And, you know, I, I, I didn't understand it, only to realize that Chuck Smith would always wear Hawaiian shirts, and so all these pastors started to mimic what Chuck wore. And I heard one pastor come against um, the, the community that I had come to love, which was the Hutterite community, and talking about their style of dress. And I said, you know what? And I walked him to a later. I said, the Hutterites at least have a scriptural reality for their, their, their position. You don't, and yet you would judge them. And, and, and this idea that we come into a church with expectations. And what's fascinating is what did God really intend for the church? What did he intend? Because as people, we tend to bend it in such a way to fit kind of our, our idea. And Jesus is attacked for the Sabbath. The Sabbath. Of all things, he's attacked for the Sabbath and what he does on the Sabbath in relation to that. And all these pastors that were gathered and, and all the actives and the, the uh, alumni didn't know what to make of this almost paradigm shift in the church itself. But at the conclusion of it, um, they, were, they were understanding and willing to reexamine their life and their ministries in relation to it. And that's, that's a big ask for people. And when folks come into a building, uh, they, they've got ideas of how it's supposed to be. And, and I'm not offended if people don't like syncopated rhythms. That's one of the reasons why in the first service we provide a hymn service where you can sing hymns if you're com- committed to that. I, I want it to be all things to all men that we might win some. I want you to be blessed. I'm not offended if there's something that doesn't fit your style of, of what you think a church is supposed to be. Because what we're going to find out in the text and what the Lord puts forward is an insight that I pray will bring you comfort. Because that's what Sundays are supposed to be. And um, amen. amen. Thank you. That was a Holy Spirit inspired amen. I'm surprised the rest of you didn't feel it. Um, <laughs> so it's, a, it's an interesting passage. The way they attack him and the way that Jesus responds, I, I believe it's going to leave us all with a great comfort in our hearts. So with that introduction, please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Luke chapter 6. I'm going to pick up at verse 1. Oh, and by the way, the very first sentence, I have read nine different commentaries. I have no idea what Luke is trying to say in the first sentence. I just want you to know that from the outset. It doesn't make any sense to me. L- look at it. Now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first. <laughs> what are you talking about? So let, I, I don't even know how to tell you anything special about that. It's a certain day, and he described it confusingly. Now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the grain fields. By the way, the grain fields at this time of year, in accordance with the chronology of the scripture, the crop was more than likely barley 
It wasn't wheat, it was barley. And barley is the poor man's crop of Israel. Um, And that was what was uh, ripe and ready for harvest. So he's going through the grain fields. It's a barley field. His disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them. And what they do is they take it and they rub it in their hands, removing the chaff from the, from the, the kernel. And some of the Pharisees said to them why they were doing this, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? But Jesus answered and said to them, have you not read this? And by the way, that's like a teacher saying, did you not do your, do your homework? He's the rabbi. And when you use a statement like that, you are telling the students they didn't do their homework. And he uses scripture to put them in their place. He loves them. But he's not going to tolerate them questioning him because he is the embodiment of the word. And he points them to the word. He says, have you not even read this, what David did when he was hungry? It's in 1 Samuel. And uh, he and those who were with him. How he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also gave some uh, some to those with him. Which is not lawful for any but to the priest to eat. And he said to them, the son of man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, while you're standing, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it, but I want to honor the word of the Lord. It's in Mark chapter 2. It's the same account of what we've read here. But Mark adds one thing that I think is of great significance. Mark chapter 2, verse 27, he adds this at the conclusion of this story. Jesus said to them, meaning the Pharisees, he says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. So the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It'll all make sense. Let's pray and ask God to bless us. Lord, we thank you for your word, which is living and breathing and sharper than a two-edged sword. And we stand in the presence of your word to honor it. And Lord, we sit in the word of the teacher to tolerate it. But God, we ask that man would decrease, that your spirit might increase. And Lord, we thank you for your word that is going to lead us into this understanding of what rest truly means, that this Sabbath is for us. And so God, please, I pray that you would minister to every heart present and by the hearing of my voice as this message would continue through the airwaves, that you would touch lives and allow them to see what you provided to us, which is such a precious gift. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please have a seat. It's Sunday, it's a Sabbath in a sense. Now to the Jew, the Sabbath would be sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. To the Christian, it's Sunday. Sabbath is this idea of what we're going to see later in Genesis chapter 2, that on the seventh day the Lord rested. And he sanctified the seventh day and he made it holy. We're also going to see in Exodus 20 that it's one of the commandments, this downloaded moral app that was given to the children of Israel, the three to five million that left Egypt wandered the wilderness, this downloaded app, first five commandments, our relationship with God, second five commandments, relationship with each other. That they would dwell together for 40 years without a police force or a standing army, all based on this downloaded moral app. Moral knowledge that causes a society to flourish and people to trust one another. And in this, in one of the commandments, he says, um, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And we'll see that momentarily. The Sabbath, Sunday, Saturday. Um, our brothers and sisters of the Seventh-day Adventists look at Saturday, the sundown Friday to sundown Saturday as their Shabbat, their Sabbath. Um, uh, Jews, whether Reform, Conservative, or Orthodox, celebrate the Sabbath in the same time frame. We look at the Lord's Day, which would be Sunday, and when Jesus rose from the grave. If you're in Israel uh, on the Sabbath, and I've been there, I've actually celebrated a Shabbat in an Orthodox family. Um, it's an amazing ad- adventure or experience, I should say. Uh, it's very relaxing. The children are running and playing and talking with the parents, and cell phones are turned off, electricity, you don't work, you just enjoy each other. It's, it's fascinating. I, I marvel at it. I think about the church itself. A lot of us, uh, if you're like my family, um, although over the years we've, we've become accustomed to it, and we've implemented some things that have made it really pleasant but early on especially when the children were young trying to get everybody in the car and get them here and you're arguing you're yelling and the kids got rat's nests in their hair and you you know clothes and then somebody you know the dog throws up whatever and you you get in the car you're yelling at each other and you finally show up at church and you put on your christian face hey god bless you you walk in and you're like just trying to hold it together and you're all exhausted and you were up late the night before and 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 it can be a little chaotic and church, you know, after a while, you, you, you come and you go and you think, why are we doing this? We're exhausted. 
And, um, and it, in this idea of worshiping, but what happens is typically, especially now, as I'm speaking, you're probably thinking of a number of things. You're probably thinking of your portfolio or work this week or a deadline that's due or uh, you know, a, a loved one that's sick or, or a concern financially. Or, and your head is spinning and you're in and out of kind of consciousness as far as being here with all of us and hearing the message. Um, and as my voice drones on, it's putting you to sleep and you just don't quite get it. And, and yet this idea is we tend to choke out worship with worry. Even when we come in to sing and ascribe praise unto the Lord through harmony and music, uh, we're, we're looking around at each other's outfits and, and, and somebody's raising their hands and so we, we kind of have a prejudgmental idea of that or you know, some person's dancing to it. or we, A thousand things distract us and, and, and then we're concerned with things of the day and, and, and so the worry and, and the, the, the bothersome things tend to choke out our worship and... Um, I think we find it a lot easier to worry than we do to worship. You know, I, I find how people are consumed with the cares of this world. And you, you could be on a topic and then all of a sudden you're off somewhere else. And you're worried and it consumes you. And I don't like to use illustrations of my children because they don't enjoy it. But since my son Michael's not here, <laughs> he was up all last night worried that's one of his first big competitions for rowing. And uh, he's never been in a competition before. He's supposed to be in Long Beach, and he's, he's rowing. And, and he's just, just consumed. I can see it. His mind is swirling with all these thoughts and ideas. And what am I doing? And I've never done this before. And I just walked in. I said, son, I'm, I'm 54. I competed. I don't even reflect back on when I used to compete. It's like irrelevant now. But at the time, it meant everything to me. And man, the pressure from my family. If you don't do well, you're not going to get a scholarship. And I just said, son, you don't have to worry about anything. I'll get you to school. I'll take care of you. You're going to be fine. I want you to go out with all the training that you've done and the hard work and the timing and the things that you've learned. I want you to go out and just put it together and enjoy yourself. Really? Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, just have a good time. And the cool thing is, you're on rowing machines. Nobody's moving. And, and he settled. And it was probably about 11.30 at night. And, and Michelle and I woke up this morning sleeping on the couch, uh, reading couch in our, our bedroom. He, he just finally just was wandering the house and kind of collapsed on the couch. He got some sleep, and there he is. He's, and it's, it's fascinating that we can worry as opposed to worship. Uh, a hero of mine who's gone to be with the Lord, Warren Wearsby, uh, he wrote this, and I was blessed by it. He said, the ability to calm your soul and wait before God is one of the most difficult things in the Christian life. Our old nature is restless. The world around us is frantically in a hurry, but a restless heart usually leads to a reckless life. We have a problem settling down and just calming and quieting our souls. It's, uh, this idea of rest is a word we often hear, but I don't think we understand the importance of it in our lives. You know, I've read all the Gospels countless times, and every time I read it, I never see Jesus running anywhere. He's never in a hurry. Just let's meditate on that for a second. He's never in a hurry. And people are like pushing him and pressuring him. You don't understand, if you were here, he wouldn't have been dead. And, and, the, and the Lord is never in a hurry. We hear this word, but we don't know how to implement it. I, I love this story. You've probably heard it, uh, but I like the angle on it, and I want to read it to you. There were two woodsmen that chopped trees down. One day, one woodsman challenged another to an all-day tree-chopping contest. The challenger worked very hard, stopping only for a brief lunch break. The other man had a leisurely lunch and took several breaks during the day. And at the end of the day, the challenger was surprised and annoyed to find that the other fellow had chopped substantially more wood than he had. I don't get it, he said. Every time I checked, you were taking a rest. Yet you chopped more wood than I did. And the man says, uh, the winning woodman, woodsman said, but you didn't notice something. And the other woodsman said, well, what? He said, I was sharpening my axe when I sat down to rest. The idea is rest makes you sharper. And I think a lot of us are frazzled and overwhelmed, and we don't take a day of the week to just calm and quiet our souls and rest. You're tired. This is a chaotic world. You know, we, we eat fast food, we drive in the fast lane, we're always in a hurry. And... 
It's exhausting. And, and we come in and we want a pre-digested message and we want a you know, pre-digested worship and we've got to get that and put it in the microwave and get back to where we are. And some folks are, can't even sit just to hear it. They're ready to go on with the rest of their day and to take time out to rest and to sit in the presence of the Lord is pretty difficult. And um, I'll tell you, I, I struggle with that too. My mind wanders. I have difficulty at times trying to pay attention. But yet the Lord is here and he wants us to clear our mind and to rest and to be in his presence. In, um, in this passage of scripture, Jesus is dealing with one of the Ten Commandments that was given on Mount Sinai. And the commandment was given earlier on in Genesis chapter 2, but this is the commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And what Jesus was saying is holy means to set it apart. It's got to be different than any of the other days. It's got to be different than any of the other days. And when the passage begins that we read earlier, and I know it was confusing, and there are some explanations to it. It's not one to trip us up. But Luke basically says, now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first. So the bottom line is Jesus is engaging in a Sabbath. You can take that to the bank. And while he's engaging in this Sabbath, he's walking through a grain field. Now, the way the grain fields were set up is similar to how the church is set up. You've got a grain field here, you've got a grain field here, you've got a grain field here, but you have paths uh, to walk between. Some of you are going, well, you changed the paths in the church. We had to because we need to make them wide enough for wheelchair access. So if you lost your seat from the previous setup, quit complaining. <laughs> Amen? Amen? Thank you. We handled that, see? And so you have these paths between the grain fields. Here's a picture of it. Um, Jesus is walking through one of the paths in the field. As he's walking through the path, uh, the disciples reach over with the grain that's hanging into the, the pathway, and they see that it's ripe, and they pull the stalk off of the grain, and they start to rub it in their hands to remove the chaff. Um, you, you've probably done something like this before, and you're removing it. Um, I'm trying to think of an equivalent of how you want to get down to the, the nutty goodness. Sunflower seeds, yeah. Just, perfect. Give that person an extra breakfast. Here's a picture of kind of how it's done. You, you rub the stalk in your hand, and then the, the chaff breaks away, and the nugget remains. Well, while this is happening, and while uh, Jesus' disciples are doing this, they're grabbing a bite to eat. You didn't have uh, vendors along the way. You didn't have refrigerated, uh, you know, you didn't have the In-N-Out burger. They're hungry, and they reach over, they grab the stock, they do this, they take some carbohydrate sustenance, and they're eating on their way to the Sabbath. They don't want to sit through the message or the teaching through the Torah, having their stomachs grumble, and they're, 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 they're hungry. Um, and, and at that moment, because the Pharisees are irritated, because they're kind of losing their hold on everything. Jesus loved the Pharisees, we've covered that. He loved the Sadducees, we covered that. But at this point, they're losing their hold on the people because the Lord is causing all these folks, thousands of them, to come and be drawn to his teachings. And they're following him from town to town, hundreds of thousands of people. The Pharisees haven't seen anything like it. And they've got to figure out a way why this guy's ministry is wrong. And, and at that moment, when the disciples pull the grain and they start to rub it in their hands to get a bite to eat, all of a sudden, back in the grain field they were waiting, these Pharisees pop up from the field. You see them in the back there? They pop up in the field and they go, aha, look at you. You have violated the Sabbath. Now, they begin to declare that he's violated the Sabbath. He says, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? They didn't accuse Jesus of stealing because they knew the word enough to know that he wasn't stealing and neither was disciples. Because Deuteronomy 23 declares that he wasn't stealing. The word of the Lord, the law says, when you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container. And when you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's uh, standing grain. So they were allowed to take some, rub it in their hands, get a bite to eat, and it's allowed. God said so. This is how you dwell together for 40 years in the wilderness because you start to treat each other kindly. You're hungry. I've got grain. Take a bite of it on your way. This is the pathway. It's acceptable. Uh, I have a neighbor who had shared with me there was a big tree in our neighborhood and all of a sudden it's gone and there's a you know, clarity in the sunlight and I, I noticed a tree was missing and it was a large tree. I said, why'd you chop it down? I was just curious. I wasn't upset. I just said, why'd you chop it? He said, well, it was lifting our driveway. Oh, okay. 
man, that makes sense. Is it doing okay now? Oh, it's doing fine. It was expensive. I go, I know, man, cutting down trees is expensive. And we decided to do some work in the back. I go, oh, that's cool. And he said, but the interesting thing is, it wasn't my tree. I go, whose tree was it? He said, well, somebody bought the tree, but my neighbor planted it. So the previous owner of our house bought the tree, but my neighbor planted the tree. And we tried to get them to pay for a portion of taking down the tree, and they weren't interested. But it's their tree. I know. And they're going back and forth. Well, what's neighborly? Well, if it's money out of your pocket, I don't know that it's necessarily neighborly. The Lord wants us to to reach deep. And it's amazing how boundary lines become very significant when it has to do with money. And here, Jesus is permitting, the Lord is permitting, you can take somebody else's grain when you're hungry going through their field. You see, the Lord wants us to dwell together in unity. We all have needs. We all have things that sustain us, hurts, wants. And he wants us to minister to one another. And so in this this declaration of Deuteronomy 23, God lays it out. He makes it real simple. And they, they couldn't accuse Jesus of stealing on the Sabbath, nor could they accuse the disciples of stealing on the Sabbath. What they were saying is you were violating the Sabbath. And you know why he was violating the Sabbath? Not because they were stealing. They weren't. They were violating the Sabbath because they were working on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. And they're walking to the synagogue, and they're hungry. And they go, that's a violation. You're working. You're harvesting and you're threshing. Harvesting and threshing. What? Yeah. You see, if you look at the Levitical laws, it's about that thick in paper on 15-point font, right? 11-point font, about, about that much. But when the Pharisees decided to sit down and decide what it means to keep the Sabbath day holy and not work, they added 26 volumes of writings. Uh, there was the Mishnah and the Midrash and the Gemara. There's 39 different ways that they decided that you could violate the Sabbath. And of the 39 different ways to violate the Sabbath, they added 39 extra rules to each one of the 39 previous rules. So you had 39 rules and 39 for each of the 39, which ended up with this massive volume of interpretation. Here you have the Midrash. It's a Jewish mode of interpretation that not only engages the words of the text behind the text and beyond the text, but also focuses on each letter and the words left unsaid by each line. And you can see the volumes of the books listed in that. And they're dealing with Midrash commentary to accuse Jesus of violating the Sabbath. And then if the Midrash wasn't enough, they'd have the Mishnah. And in the Mishnah, it's a document that describes a life of sanctification in which the rituals of the temple are adapted for communal participation in a world that had no temple. That would come later. But of the, the Midrash... They added the Gemara, and the Gemara is interesting. It's a component of the Talmud comprising rabbinical analysis of the commentary on the Mishnah. And there are two versions of the Gemara, the Jerusalem Talmud and the Talmud Bavli, which is from the Babylonian Jews. And you add all this, and you've got 26 volumes of books to add to this little tiny thing God gave us. And one of the commandments is, keep the Sabbath day holy, sanctify it, set it apart. Well, to do that... You can't do this and you can't, you can't turn on electricity because that's combustible and you're not allowed to turn on a light switch. And if you've ever been in Israel on the Shabbat, uh, th- there's elevators that people take and there's one elevator nobody takes. And that's called the Shabbat elevator. Don't get on the Shabbat elevator. I've made that mistake too many times. It's like, oh, I got my luggage. Oh, great. There's an open elevator. You get in. It opens and closes at every floor. So you're at the 20th floor. It's like, bing, 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 bing. It takes a day and a half to get down to the bottom of the lobby. And, and you have, you, there's, there's so many things. For example, in this, the Gemara and the Mishnah and the, the Talmud and all the things adding to the law, part of the, the Sabbath day is a woman's not allowed to look in a mirror. Because if she looks in a mirror and sees a gray hair, she's tempted to pluck it, which would be considered harvesting. <laughs> You're laughing, but it's true. And you, you can only wash your hands with a half an egg, uh, a half egg shell of water because that's considered not bigger than a walnut. And they've got all these things, and they keep adding to this thirty-nine and thirty-nine to each of the thirty-nine. And after a while, you're like, I, what, I don't, I can't even move. And it just, it, you're paralyzed. And you think the legalism of it all. Well, the one thing I can say about the Orthodox community 
is even with all the rules and regulations, the one thing they have over the body of Christ is they spend time with their family. They just kind of stop and quiet themselves and enjoy each other's company. It's kind of special. You know, I think about how difficult it is for church and how it becomes kind of a secondary idea and, and we come and go and it's just difficult and and folks come up to me, and, and I'll see them in the community, and they, I haven't been to church in a while, and I'm so sorry. I'm like, relax, calm down. This is, this is an opportunity to enjoy. It's not one you have to feel guilty about. Granted, you're missed when you're not here because we enjoy you being here. And we want it to be a blessing. And I, 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 I come to be refreshed. But if there's a certain way you're supposed to dress, yes, I'm wearing a, a, a blazer. Typically, I don't. But I didn't have a shirt that I could wear untucked so that the microphone cord would go down. And, and I, I wore this shirt and this blazer. And the blazer's a little tight and I'm a little uncomfortable because it doesn't quite fit. And I'm, I don't say anything. <laughs> but let's just consider I wear this and now everyone thinks, well, at the Calvary Chapel, God speak. If we're going to continue this, we need to all wear blazers because the pastor wears a blazer. Do you see how this adds to it? And after a while, everyone's wearing Hawaiian shirts or blazers. And, and the, the Lord doesn't want to make it that way. Listen, I don't care how you come to church. I don't care how, how you're dressed. Just be dressed. <laughs> that, that's irrelevant. But for some, it's, it's a day you dress up. Praise the Lord. That's, that's meaningful to you. Dress up. For others, it's a day where I don't have to wear a suit. And I want to just enjoy the presence of the Lord. Relax. Great. Praise the Lord. Relax. What, whatever you're comfortable with, do it. All things are permissible, not all things are profitable. If it's profitable for you, it's permissible. If it's profitable to have this worshipful relationship with the Lord, I want you to do it. I want you to have a joy in doing that. You know, and, and you think, well, I'm not allowed to work on this day. And, and, and I think that the Sabbath should be on a Saturday. Hey, there's different days. For some of you, Sunday's a work day. Maybe your schedule's such, and you pick a Wednesday to come and, and celebrate a Sabbath because we have services on, on Wednesday. And they're accusing Jesus of violating the Sabbath. He didn't violate the Sabbath according to the word of God. He violated the Sabbath according to their extra biblical writings. And you know what he does? He brings them right back to the word of God. And he takes their king, David, who is in the Messianic line, the line of the tribe of Judah, which would be the Messiah. He takes David, he says, put this in your pipe and smoke it. He brings it right to him in verse 3. He says, answering them, have you not even read this? Did you not do your, do your homework, students? And they're like, I'm sorry, what are you speaking of? He says, what David did when he was hungry, do you remember that? He was hungry. He and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread and also gave some to those with him, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. He violated that. And he said to them, the son of man is also Lord of the Sabbath. I made the Sabbath for you. I didn't make you for the Sabbath. I made it so you could enjoy it. And you're allowed to eat on the Sabbath. Amen to that. I love eating on the Sabbath. You know what I love to do on the Sabbath? It is, and I think this should be in the God Speak Mishnah. A nap. Oh, not just a nap. There's three types of naps. There's casual. That's where you just kind of fall asleep on the couch. Semi-formal. Kind of take your shoes off and put your feet up and put a little pillow there, maybe a throw. No. The Sabbath, formal nap. In your night clothes, under the sheets, bedside Baptist, pastor pillow, holy comforter. No alarm, blackout curtains, nobody bugs me. Don't knock on the door, don't come over to my house, don't ask for something, I am sleeping. If you do, you're in violation of the Sabbath, as far as I'm concerned. That is a written rule. I love a formal nap on Sundays. My family knows it. I'll have people over the house. Hey, how you doing? I'm going to bed. And, and it seems rude, but anyone who comes to my house knows. Hey, 
Love you guys. Not going to talk anymore. Night night. <laughs> and I have this joy and this freedom just to do that. It's, it's special to me. And I enjoy that. What do you enjoy? You know, for my wife, she has a t-shirt that says, Sundays are for Jesus and football. Some of you are like, ooh. <laughs> well, live your own life. Quit living my wife's. Calm down. She enjoys football on Sunday when it's being played. She actually likes, likes this new league. She's into it. Although, not as good, but it's cool. And, and, and she watches football. I'm not a real football guy, but I sit with her because I enjoy her company, and I get a kick out of how she gets into it. Oh, this is so awesome. And I'm thinking, honey, it's, it's pig skin being kicked around a muddy field. I know. <laughs> and they just put it through the two bars. Did you see it? I'm like, yeah. No, I'm into football. I love the Rams. It's fun to watch and get into it. But she's really into it. That brings her a joy and a rest for a Sunday. And there are times where she's just glued to it with college football on Saturdays. She's like, Arr. and I'm a football widow. And I'm okay with that. But we enjoy conversing. And, you know, for some, some guys, they're, they're father, son, they have a connection with baseball. And it's gone through generations with your grandfather. Even with daughters and fathers, and there's just connection in sports. Whatever it is that brings you together, do it. There's just something restful. And, 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 and if Sundays are tense and coming into church is tense, here's why. You haven't made Sunday special. You haven't made the Sabbath special. The reason why the Orthodox community has such a wonderful time on their Sabbath is because they prepare for the Sabbath. What, what, what exhausts you on a Sunday? Getting the kids ready? Do it on Saturday night. Prepare it. Go to bed earlier. Pre-prepare pre, 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 a meal. Did I say that right? Have it waiting so that when you come home, you don't have to cook anything. Have paper plates out. For those of you ecologically minded, just burn them. You know, make them so that they can go in the landfill and com, com, de- decompose. Whew. I was so nervous about that. Don't use styrofoam or plastic. But in, enjoy, enjoy the time. Make it simple. Go to bed at a reasonable hour. Don't stay up on a Netflix binge on Saturday night. And then drag your sorry self in on Sunday, irritated with everybody because you haven't had any rest. Make Sunday special. Just prepare because this is a chance that the Lord has set aside. You know why he set it aside? Because he loves to be with you. And he wants you to love to be with him. And not, does he, not just that he loves to be with us and he wants us to love to be with him. He loves it that we love to be together. You see, David... David was the one that Jesus referred to, and they dumped on Jesus, and Jesus took him to David. And what David did is he was running uh, from Saul, running for his life. He gets to Ahimelech the priest, and this is in uh, 1 Samuel uh, 21. He gets to Ahimelech the priest, and he's hungry. He's running for his life. He says, I'm hungry. Is there any food? And Ahimelech says, the only food we have is the food that was consecrated uh, in the temple. And the way it's consecrated is the, the priest makes showbread. And actually, there on the left, it looks like Krispy Kreme donuts. That's just kind of how I'm seeing things. <laughs> they almost look like glazed bagels. And there's six, uh, 12 total, six on each side, the 12 tribes of Israel. This is put in the temple. It's an offering to the Lord. And then, then they would bring in the hot bread and replace it. And instead of throwing it out, he said, you can take this. He said, have your men uh, not been w- with their wives? And he says, they're consecrated. He was lying and everything about it. And he eats it and he goes his way. And he's not struck dead. God didn't strike him dead for, for violating this idea of, of, of the Sabbath, and violating consecrated food that's unto the Lord. And, and the reason why the Lord didn't strike him dead is because Sabbath is for the man, not man for the Sabbath. David was hungry. There's food. Eat it, David. Eat it. Look, I get it. You have needs. You have to work today? Go work. You got things to do? Go do that. But the question is, do you have a day set aside to rest? Because when you rest, you get sharper. And not just rest, I want you to know something. Everybody who's here enjoys being with you. We're of like mind. Let me show you what the Lord intended when he did the Sabbath in Genesis chapter 2. 
He says, thus the heavens, this is the seventh day of creation. He says, thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, the day of completion, on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day. He wasn't tired. He stopped creating. He just stopped to enjoy his creation. He rested, meaning he wanted to enjoy it. That's what we do when we rest. We just enjoy each other's company. We don't have to cook anything. We don't have to be at work. We just get to be with each other. On the seventh day, he rested from his work, which he had done. Verse 3, then he blessed the seventh day. He made it special. He anointed it with joy. And he sanctified it, set it apart. This is for you. Because in it, he rested from all the work which he had done and created and made. He just wanted to enjoy his creation. He made it for you, and he made it for him to enjoy you and you to enjoy him. Here's a day for you, God says. You're just like me, God says. You've been created in my image. You're really good at creating. You're really good at forming and fashioning. You work hard, and your work is worshipful, and you're creating benefits for others and you're engaging in their lives and you're making the world a better place and I'm proud of you and I want you to just come away after a busy week and I want you to just sit down and kind of look at it. And I have to tell you something about Sundays for me. Uh, I come and, and I'll see my daughter worshiping, uh, leading in worship and singing. I'll see my other daughter working back in the children's ministry. I'll see my boy helping here and there. I'll see my wife doing stuff. And I look around and I just, I'm, I'm overwhelmed with joy because we love being here. This isn't work to us. It's a joy. And not only that, when I don't see you, there's not a guilt or condemnation. The, the reality is, when I see you, I'm excited to see you. I, I, I missed you. And when you come up and tell me the same, it's comforting. I really miss being here. I missed you too. Why is this so significant? Why is it that, that this building is supposed to be so important? Well, the reality of it is this. Six days a week we live in a fallen world contending with ideologies that reject the existence of God and one day of the week we gather in assembly to find rest and refreshment. I think what's so special to me about this fellowship for 18 years is its home. Whatever I face out there, I know I'm understood here. I know I'll be prayed for and comforted and cared for and thought of. And I'll get a warm hug, a kind word, see a familiar face. And I know that when I look at you, his spirit bears witness with my spirit that we're in unison. The world out there will reject the existence of God and I come into this room full of lunatics that believe God exists that we would think that that he actually created the world and that we're accountable to him and that there are moral absolutes and that we want to live our life in such a way as to honor him you're a bunch of crazy people you're peculiar and I love that in addition, it's a room full of folks that we've tried that. And we found a God of grace and mercy. And you don't look at me with my past and all my struggles and judge me. You look at me as saved by grace through faith. You don't, you don't measure me. And the same on this end. You know how comforting that is? I love this place. In addition, not only would you take time out of your week to come and spend it here. The Bible says wonderfully in Hebrews chapter 10. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. As is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We don't forsake fellowshipping together, assembling together. It's an assembly. And I, I love assembling together as we've all 
engaged in the world as the ecclesia, where that leaven in Matthew 13, infused in the world, contending with the world, causing it to rise to the glory of the Lord, battling day in and day out as people are dumping on us and telling us we're fools and we're idiots and, and why would we think this and, and we're archaic and, and on and on and on. And they label us and they judge us and, they, and then they come into this room and you just exhale and you just go, it's so good to see you. It's so good to be refreshed by your presence and, and this stirring up of love and good works, hearing testimonies of your lives and what you've endured and endeavored through in the course of the week. And, and people try to <laughs> infiltrate through their phones. <laughs> no, but we, we just calm and quiet ourselves and we can relate to it. We have that in common and there's just this peace as we, we assemble together. And when the scripture says not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, nobody forces you to come here. You're not going to heaven because you attended church. You're saved by grace through faith. You're coming because this is the body of Christ. We're family. And there's something about assembling together to be strengthened in that fellowship. And to settle and realize how big he is and how small our problems are in comparison to the Lord. And in the midst of our trial, the comfort, we just studied on Wednesday night, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-7, through 7, which says, Comfort others with the comfort you yourself have received. The trials and the t- tribulations and the pain that so many in this room have experienced that have just ripped your heart out. As God sees us through this and we're stretched in this capacity to, to have compassion and comfort, having been comforted in the midst of trials that the world just can't even seem to fathom, And as we get through the other side, we sit with somebody who's going through that and say, I've been there. You walk them through that and the strengthening and the encouragement in a fallen world one day a week to set aside. I can't tell you what it means to me. I love this place. And, And in addition, that you would work six days a week, some of you seven, long hours. And you would take a portion of 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 what you've earned, you would set it aside to contribute to keep a fellowship so we would have a building to be able to assemble in. That you would allow me to do this, to teach the word without having to worry about how I'm going to have my family fed and others within the fellowship. And you do that joyfully and willingly. I've never asked you for a dime and I never will. And yet you, you give. Because you love this place like we do. I I went to the tax guy um, on Friday. I brought all my paperwork. And I took the same envelope you received from Pastor Tony uh, with your giving. And I opened it up to put it in. And I looked at the the number. I said, I could have bought a car. (laughs) And you know what? That's the best money I spent. Because it has brought me the greatest joy. I love this place. The thing that just hit me in this whole passage, two things. One is in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. Don't turn there. It says, the Lord your God is in your midst. He's here right now. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love and he will rejoice over you with singing. There's just something special about gathering together and sensing that. And then David wrote in one of the greatest trials of his life in Psalm 116, verse 7, he says, Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. There's a lot of things where we hold God at fault for, only to realize that if he's to remove sin from the earth, he has to remove sinners. He, he allows things to happen, but he walks us through life in the midst of a fallen world with pain. And the pain is not for naught. It is to, to equip us to minister deeply in a world that desperately needs the touch of the Lord. He's here. He brings meaning in the midst of chaos. And I think what touched me is Luke didn't do it, but Mark did in the account of this story of Jesus walking through the grain fields with his disciples when he concluded the passage by saying this. He said... The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. This is what God wants you to know. It's real simple. Real simple. I made this day for you. 
And you do whatever's necessary in your life to enjoy my presence for one day. Because I want to spend time enjoying your presence for one day. Just you and me. Could you imagine how revolutionary it would be for families to just spend one day of a seven-day week enjoying each other's company? So that's what you look like. That your kids would actually know what you do for a living. That you would actually know what studies they've been undertaking and the friends that they're hanging out with. I'm not talking about video games. I'm just talking about a dinner together. Not a microwave burrito. Or you're eating it and burning your mouth because you couldn't wait for the microwave and you're running out going, I'll see you later, pops. Just sit down with a meal. Just, just enjoy each other. Make, make the Sabbath special. Enjoy each other. Enjoy the presence of the Lord. And come to church where it's not a hassle. If it's a hassle, you're too busy. If God took one day to say, I want to be with you, I think it's good if we take one day to be with him. Figure out how to make it special. You know your family better than I do. There's no requirements here. You want to come to the 9? You want to come to the 11? You want to come to the evening? You want to come to Wednesday? If you don't want to do any of those and you want to have a home fellowship, do that. But whatever it is, don't forsake fellowshipping because people love to be with you just as much as hopefully you want to be with them. We need to be encouraged in a fallen world that six days a week we're getting beat up and we get to be with people of like mind. I love to be with you lunatics. I love it. And it really does strengthen my heart. It blesses me more than you know. I think the conclusion of the message is really simple. We're all pretty tired. This place can grind on you. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of worry. Calm down. Settle down. Take 24 hours. Spend time in his presence and with his people and watch something happen. All that's going to dwindle and dissipate as you're strengthened in the presence of others and in his presence. There's something significant about a sanctified rest in God. You're going to realize how powerful and how big he is compared to how much you're struggling with. And he's going to speak to you. The conclusion of this message is really simple. Calm down, everybody. This isn't a hassle. It's a day of rest. Don't make it something it doesn't need to be. I don't, don't worry about what other people are wearing, or what music they listen to, or what the pastor wears. Calm down, rest in the Lord, and spend time in His presence and with His people. Engage in a meaningful conversation. Calm and quiet your soul and just spend time with the Lord and watch how it'll remarkably transform you, encourage you and fill you. Rest in the Lord.